a veteran in the field, Bob started doing user research since it was known as human factors. His years of wisdom in the field led him to find bold insight in the UK. Apart from helping his clients understand their users, Bob also gives talks on the emerging phases of user research, making the research world a little more wiser. This is India's first user and UX research podcast, Core User to UX, and I am your host, Sweekriti. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. It is great to have you here. And someone like you who has seen user research change so drastically and adapt to it and survive till now. I mean, that's tremendously honorable. So thank you so much for agreeing to come to my show. This is amazing. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. So as I said that, you know, you have seen a lot of user research change and then evolve. So the first question I would like to ask you is regarding what you have called or what I've heard from you is human factors. In fact, to be honest, that's the first time I heard it. So in our last call, we discussed that it started as human factors. That is when you started working independently, you started your own company, which finally evolved to Bold Insight. I would like to start from that term, human factors. What is human factors and how can it apply to today's user research? Sure, sure. Good starting point. So let's talk about human factors. Actually, human factors didn't come about recently. It's actually been quite a long time. I mean, you can you can actually trace back the first real instances of of human factors as a term and as a methodology and as a capability way back to ooh, I don't know the 1920s, 1930s. Um, and and actually the the real rigor began in and about the era of World War II when there's a rich history. You know, what, what was happening was planes were flying, but they were crashing and they weren't crashing because of the the um, the engineering. They were crashing because of the human. We couldn't get the human to actually fly the planes, but it wasn't really the fault of the humans. It was it was could we could we engineer solutions? Could we engineer techniques by which users could fly planes? by which users could, or pilots, I should say, could fly planes. And it led us to the era of, well, maybe if we place certain controls here and certain indicators here, we can reduce the accident rate. We can reduce the error rate because it was design-induced error. And so human factors came about to reduce design-reduced error. So it was really preceded the internet. There's a rich history in aviation, like I said, but also within power generation, um, within telecommunications. There's even early studies that go back to the mid 1800s, where obviously it wasn't called user research or human factors. It was just how we tested with people and how they interacted with physical things in their world and then improved them. So human factors today is actually has a more specific meaning that is relates to, usually relates to medical device or usually relates to things that are that are very technical in their nature, very um, safety conscious, very safety related. Um, whereas 
when we start to look at usability, user experience, UX, that those terms generally came about with the the rise of the internet. So, you know, here we're talking the mid 90s and beyond and into uh, where it really took off um, in the last generation. Um, so, you know, I, I, I like to feel like, you know, we didn't start from nothing, right? At, at the end of the day, we really started with the psychology of human behavior, and we used that to, to work through human factors, to work it through various other um, instantiations, if you will, of, uh, of what we call UX and user research today. Understood. That was a very simple and understandable explanation. In fact, that's that aviation story is a classic in user research. A lot of articles and everything starts from that point. What I would like to know now is the starting of Bold Insight. And since you are, you are someone who has worked within this ambit of human factors, and what I'm trying to say here is that you have worked with the physical or the analog world, for lack of a better word. And how are you applying those principles into the digital world? Like, what is something that someone like me, who was born with all this, all these digital things around me, would miss? But maybe you would rather catch or you would rather apply. Yeah, I think it's kind of it's kind of short-sighted in many ways to just think of user experience and UX as a digital phenomenon, right? Because realistically, the DNA, the bottom line goes back to how people interact with the world. If you've read Don Norman, if you've read anything that that Don Norman has written, you get that sense. Like um, in, in our office today, we're we're having thermostat wars because some people think it's too cold, other people think it's too warm. Well, actually what you find out is the thermostat behaves in a certain way. And if you keep manipulating it because you have a poor mental model of how that works, it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. So digital is a small part of it. I won't say a small part. Of it. It's a large part of, of what people practice today. The reality is we as humans haven't changed in 10,000 years in terms of what we can do, what we can see, how we behave in our fundamental makeup, right? We we perceive, we see, we think, we do. But this is, you know, it's only because we interact with digital products most of the time that we kind of think that that's where the lines are. The reality is it's it's everywhere. Do you see a sign that you don't understand? Do you look at a, a fire escape plan and wonder if I had 20 seconds to figure out how to get out of this building, could I get out of here, right? So it's a, it's the maps we look at. It's all of those things in our world that our psychology, our ability to perceive, to think, and to act, whether it's digital or not, are intersecting with. Um, so if I kind of, going back to the first part of your question, relative to Bold Insight, our founding was actually more like 2000 when we started as a company called user centric and we built that up to a certain point and we sold it to gfk and then after about five and a half years we said no we didn't want to do that anymore and we founded bold insight so the stretch of that time we've seen so that's been you know more than 20 years and if i go back if i go back and i look at 
some of the things that we were interested in back in, in 2000, you, we actually, when we were screening people, we had to ask them if they knew what a mouse was. We have to ask them if they knew how to use a mouse. There was no, there was, there were no mobile phones. That wasn't even a thing until probably 2007. So we really, we saw a lot and, and things have changed and they're changing every day. So what's exciting, but it, uh, it really does alter how we work in this world. Yeah. So that's kind of a long answer to your question, but you know, when we think about it, we worry about how people interact with stuff and that stuff can be digital. It can be physical, can be just about anything. So what I'm getting a sense here is that being just oriented towards digital as a user researcher can limit our capabilities in a really bad way because the DNA doesn't care if it's digital or analog. It, it really doesn't care the DNA of user research. It just cares with users and interactions. You as a human, how do you, you know, can you understand your your microwave oven can you understand how to use your washer and dryer um just the icons on some things like i on my microwave or on my stove i think i can understand one icon and there's probably 12. well whose fault is that you know maybe i could put in a little bit more time but i think design is a function of expressing the functionality of what a device is in a way that users can use it. And if that's a physical object or a digital object, it, it doesn't really matter. It, it cuts across it cuts across all those things in our world that we interact with. Mm, understood. Now coming to another topic, which we have discussed previously, and you also mentioned, that is mental models. And I would like you to share the Telegram story that you shared with me of a woman who came to use Telegram, I'll not complete it. And after that, I would also like you to define mental models and uh, see it through a lens of, through the, and see it through the lens of AI. Well, let's, let's start with the second question because I think that's, that's important. We all come to the world with, with certain perceptions of how things work, right? So if I go over to a light switch, and I click it, I expect that that light will turn on. If the light doesn't turn on, then I wonder, well, why not? Well, I begin to think through my model of how a light switch works and how a light bulb works. Maybe the switch is defective. Maybe the light bulb is defective. I have certain ways in which certain models in my head that, that describe how things in the world work. And so, and that's a very simplistic example. But if those models are, to the extent that those models are isomorphic or very similar to the actual functioning, then I have a very good interaction with that device or that system. It could be anything. It could be an automobile. It could be my, my remote control. You know, if I know that I do certain things and certain things happen, great. If they don't, then I need to have a model that will help me debug it that will help me improve on it, right? So we all walk around with these models of how things work, and when they work fine, and when they work according to that model, it's great. 
when they don't work according to that model, things go wrong. And either we have an insufficient model or um, sometimes we have an incorrect model and, and life is a little bit more difficult. So the example that you pointed out is one that I really love because if we look at the history of invention, it, you know, we go, there are a lot of things in this world that are, that we look at and go, that was an inflection point in history. That was an inflection point for humankind. So we know that when the, the printing press was released, that ushered in literacy all over Europe and eventually all over the world. So it was cheap to publish. It was cheap to put things out. When we look at things like capturing electricity, that allowed us to do a phenomenal number of things. But when you begin to look at the modern day things like AI, and you start to go back and look at various analogs to that, analogies to that, there are very few that are, that are similar to generative AI. And there's one that I like to bring in, and I hinted to it, and you hinted to it, which is the telegraph. Because the telegraph was the first moment in history that I can think of where we were able to communicate not via physical artifacts, but via a digital artifact. So think about it. You had never seen SMS messaging before. You'd never seen a, a text message before. And all of a sudden, from somebody, you know, a, you know, 100 kilometers away, sends a message, and you're able to receive it. And that's never been a part of your worldview. You have no mental model for how this works because you you, you have you have bits that are being transmitted over wires rather than a physical piece of paper that previously somebody had to write something down, put it in an envelope, and get shipped off via post or via um, any other means to arrive. So this was this was a profound change in the way people saw the world. They could transmit messages long distance almost instantaneously. And so it, in that way, it began to mess with people's heads. So a couple of really great examples here. Um, and this is this comes from a great book called The Victorian Internet, and where the author Tom Standage says he he points to two examples. One, there's a woman who's whose son is at the is at a battlefront, and she runs into the telegraph office with a bowl of sauerkraut, and she goes, "Here, take this and send it to my son." So she had a complete misconception that you were transmitting bits and not atoms. She wanted those atoms to go over the wire, somehow be, be put into that wire, transmitted and reconstructed so her son could have food who was on the fighting end of that. So, it, I mean, it, it, it takes a certain amount of, it, you know, we're amused by that now, right? Because we see this happening all day, every day. And another example, and this is, I think, more, you know, it's not quite as fantastic, but I think it's more, of the way people thought about it in the time. And that is somebody ran into a, into the telegraphy office with a sheet that had a message on it and said, I want you to send this to, to so-and-so on the uh, other end of, of the wire. So the telegrapher said, sure. And he tapped out the message and he sent that message and then he hung it up on the wall. And the, the, the person who came into the office said, said, wait, no, you didn't send it. It's up there on the wall still not differentiating the difference between atoms, which was the paper, and bits, which was the message that went out. So we have 
and now if we come into to modern day times, it's not quite a perfect analogy, but it is something that's that's similar that we are working with a technology that is in generative AI that is kind of scrambling our brains in a similar way, right? It's making us go, wait a minute, how does this thing, if I just type in a regular sentence, come back and tell me something that is seemingly really intelligent and spot on, right? So we're not quite at the point of being able to wrap our heads around this current technology that we have. Uh, and even, even the CEO of, of Google, Sundar Pichai, in about two months ago now, Sundar compared generative AI with the discovery of fire and the discovery of electricity, which, you know, if you think about it, that's a pretty profound statement. Um, I think we're at a point in time where we can understand that, you know, we've, we've had enough history with AI-like stuff that we can wrap our heads around it, but it's still very, very scary if you look at it, of how good it is in many ways. Hmm. And this makes me think, like, when humans are able to extrapolate out of something, they feel more comfortable. And when they are not, then there is some anxiety. So I was doing some user testings today, and I realized that in the prototype, it was not fully functioning. The prototype wasn't fully functioning because it was a Figma prototype. So what was happening is that when the text was stacked in a vertical form, then users felt more comfortable because they could see that, okay, if I type here, everything will change in the vertical format. But if, you know, if it was sort of in a layout with images and they had to type text above, they could not see how will it apply. So what I'm talking here about is a type tester. In type tester, if you type your own text and all the fonts will change, like all the fonts, if there is a Helvetica font, that will change. If there is a Gotham font, that will change. So how the fonts were arranged, if they were arranged vertically, then users were able to extrapolate that, okay, if I apply here, that is how it will change. But if the format changed, then they were a little bit confused they were like, I see that you have given me a type tester, but I'm not sure how will it apply in this format. So even there, a mental model is working where they're used to seeing something in a certain way and not being able to extrapolate from there, they feel uncomfortable. So I think it's also about how you can extrapolate. For example, with generative AI, the possibilities are endless and still we are not able to fathom, okay, what will happen finally so maybe that is where that anxiety is coming from so thank you so much for giving all those examples that bits and atoms part really made sense yeah, thank you yeah. so much for this insight and uh, again now that we have started on the topic of ai <clears throat> so i really need to sit back for this i see user research as the preventive hero and what i mean by that you know there are what I mean by that is that heroes are never rewarded for stopping some calamity. They're always rewarded when the calamity happens and then if they're able to do some damage control. But the user research part is a preventive hero. That is, they can stop calamities if you do it the right way. And that is why it is so unrewarded and maybe not so recognized or 
it's not so widespread like maybe some other profession and that is how i feel about it because i've experienced it firsthand that they can sense the difference before user research and after user research but only when the after user research part came in they could sense that okay user research actually makes a difference however with ai where lots of user data is available now gpt4 is connected to the internet and it can analyze like anything like humans don't have that processing power and i am i doubt if they'll ever get that so what really bugs me is that it can negatively impact user research where it is already in a position where one cannot see the value clearly like it's not the saving grace hero or after the calamity hero and with ai into the picture you know founders can be like why do we need a user researcher we can just ask large language models to do it for us and it already has so much data so i really see that as a negative impact what do you have to say about that i want to go back to your preventative hero thing cuz i think that's an interesting that's an interesting take because you're right i i think oftentimes the quality of our work will go unrecognized because we have already cleaned things up before they go out right and very early on i wouldn't even say it was in my career but one of my one of my first jobs i ever did i was a janitor right and you could always tell if the janitor had not been there right and so much of what we do now is cleaning up and if we don't do that it's like the janitor who's not there there's a still a big mess that's left behind so you know maybe that's not maybe that's not the most elegant of of parallels but uh, but there is there is something to what you say i think i sort of going off of what you of what you're saying about ai and user research i'm not quite as willing to concede that it's that good i think it's a long way from being that good right i think that there are some good things some positive things and some negative things about using ai within user research i think we've done we're doing quite a bit of research in this space right now that uh, will will be set to release toward the end of end of the summer end of uh, september actually where we're using it to do things like transcriptions and then translations and then subtitling and clipping quotes automatically you know finding good quotes to be honest these are things at least in my book that are not they don't require a lot of brain work right it's oftentimes very tedious they're really research ops related and if we can be clever enough to use ai to do that kind of work then that frees us up to do the brain work to do the really good stuff um so i really feel like we're still evolving in this but there are some some upsides there are some some good things that are happening there on the downside and this is where i think there are my opinion there are too many people getting too excited too quickly about this you know we just we've collected about 50 interviews in house and we we're just asking chatgpt to summarize and it's doing a horrible job of summarizing we're asking them to compare two different two different transcripts and it's not doing that it's not synthesizing those very well at least relative to what we think an expert human researcher would do so anybody who is using it 
I think in that context um, is probably doing a disservice to their data. Um, what, what the AI does not have and the researcher should have is that context, right? Why was the research done? Yeah, you can set a context, but you can't give it the richness of what the researcher has. You can't give it the richness of the preconditions, why the research is being done, what the expected outcomes are, what the what's a positive outcome, what's a negative outcome. There's so many different variables that go into what makes a, a successful set of findings that I, I just don't see this happening anytime soon. Um, I, I also think as a researcher, you'll you'll understand this, that that there are times when when you're doing a study and you know, a lot of times we want to aggregate the data and say so many people said this and so many people said that. It misses what I would call the golden nugget, right? There might be that one person who makes that one sentence and makes you go, ah, that's it. And if if what we're trying to do with with AI is sort of get this to a synthetic layer that, you know, what are all the commonalities, you're gonna miss that golden nugget. You're gonna miss that that one opportunity that a researcher who understands the context, the prototype is going to be able to pull out and go, that's worth it. That was, that's everything to this research. So I believe that there certainly uh, is a role. There's a robust role here, but it's not on the, it's more on the routine side. It's more on the research ops side. You know, is it going to write a screener for you? Probably not. Well, it might help start a screener. Will it write a discussion guide? I would say almost certainly not, right? Because that's all context dependent. It's it's question dependent. I, I also think there's a certain amount of tendency to laziness that if we're not careful, right? If we go, oh, that's good enough, and we let it go, I, I think that we can become too dependent. We can... We just have to be careful that we're we're not getting too um, too complacent with it. So it, it's interesting. Um, one last bit here: we asked in in our interviews, our 50 interviews that we did at the um, uh, in March, we still had a whole number of researchers who really couldn't describe what generative AI was. Um, and now we went back to them a couple of weeks ago and 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 did a survey of all of those folks again. Um, and almost every company that we talk to now has a policy in place about the use of LLMs in, um, in, in their work. So there are huge issues that have to be addressed yet. Things like intellectual property, who owns what, non-disclosure, consents, privacy, security, all of that is yet to be resolved, and I don't think it's going to be resolved anytime soon. So anyway, um, I think I hit your points, probably more so. Yes, absolutely. And you brought something really important. That is the golden nugget part, because I am taking quite a few interviews these days. And someone says something that puts things into perspective. And I really don't know when will AI be able to do that, pull that thing that makes your puzzle go ah so this was the missing piece and this is making my puzzle more clear you're getting to the solution right so 
getting to that part and that part is so intuitive and not clear in the most machine sense so i don't know when that is going to happen and i really hope that companies realize the importance of those golden nugget insights and sentiments and how it is important to put place and how it is important to put things into place yeah. with the help of such insights so thank you so much for bringing that and now coming to the positives of ai so one thing which many people maybe know about but are not acknowledging is that we already had natural language processing systems which were similar to ai only so what you could do is that you could put loads of data and they could cluster data and there were whole sets of things that nlps can do and now with ai i think it's like nlps only but now they have become more popular so there are already tools to help you analyze qualitative data and now they have become more popular because chat gpt and everything has become general so keeping that in mind what are the positives of ai with respect to user research that in your research maybe came out or which you feel can really help user researchers change their analysis game or change their interview taking game like it could be anything yes that's actually a good question and a point that we've been thinking a lot about go back to this question of the metaphor what is the the metaphor of ai's involvement together with the researcher and my one of my colleagues lindsay has sort of said you know what the right metaphor here is one of a sparring partner of like a like a fencer right so you're you're actually using the ai to make you better as a researcher so give it the give it the transcripts give it the the information and say all right tell me the interesting stuff that you found in there and it will generate some information and honestly we might not know whether that's good or bad but the thing that we can do as researchers is say all right if the ai has the i don't want to use the word knowledge but it has that content you can actually turn it around and say all right have the ai ask the researcher questions so we've done that we've turned it on its head and we said all right let's see what we can pull out of here by creating a contentious dialogue right such that the ai the large language model chat gpt in this case and the researcher work together to look at the data and that's something that we've that we're playing around with and we think that that's a, a fair model especially if what we're really trying to do is say um help me understand this but when the ai when the language model comes back with something challenge it make it support it make it go into detail so really try to refine this concepts as best as possible um and i think there is a model there that we can work with particularly as these um these tools get better um personally i'm rather partial to bard these days but i go back and forth a little bit um I, the metaphor i used and i'm not sure it's the right one but i it's kind of like you know when michelangelo looked at a piece of marble he saw the statue in it and chipped away at it until he had the statue and in some sense as researchers we've got a statue embedded inside of of a whole bunch of text and transcripts and things 
then maybe what we're trying to do is to get the AI to help us define the statute, right? So at the end of the day, are these metaphors useful? I don't know, but they we need to have ways that we think about interaction and then we can push it around a little. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. That's a really interesting take because what I feel is that it is adding another angle to your triangulation. And that's yeah. very easy triangulation. Or else you would have to do a survey or something else, maybe ask some other researcher to have a look at it. But here, a machine with the help of a machine, you can add another angle so easily. And that really gives you food for thought and a hook to think in another direction. So thank you so much for bringing that up. I really never thought about it that way. Till now, I had just been using it here and there for my grunt work or the dog work, as I like to say. But yeah, that's a really interesting point that you brought up. So thank you so much for that. Last thing that I would like to discuss and something that you brought up is accessibility. And you know, accessibility in terms, it is a very wide term actually. So I would like you to shed light upon it and give it some skeleton on how you are seeing accessibility and how AI or how it can be included in user research. Because to be honest, I'm really not so knowledgeable in that aspect to start something or maybe just give it a prompt as it is famous today to say, but maybe you could shed some light. Yeah, it is. It's worthy of its own podcast series, let alone an episode or a question in, in an episode. But, but let me kind of take a crack at it. I mean, accessibility as a broader term is just improving the ability of populations that may have certain values that make it harder for them to use more traditional features and, and functions of a device, of a digital service, for instance. Uh, so what, what we try to do is ensure that people who, who have some disabilities are able to use it at the same level as people who don't. Now, I, I'll talk about it in, in terms that I've been talking about it elsewhere, and in my particular flavor of this, if you will, is, a, is for older adults. I tend to find that a lot of times when things are designed, they're designed for and by people of a certain generation or people of a certain a, a capability or knowledge of certain tools. And, and that's fine, but if they're mass market tools, I mean, to watch somebody struggle with the ability to use a QR code or to do multi-factor authentication um, or to even watch television or go to, the, go to the bank or interact with government services, um, those things are pretty important at the end of the, well, the, the government services and, and, and banking and healthcare are pretty important at the end of the day. But you've got this, you, we're beginning to generate this friction and, and, and I don't know how to resolve it, but we've got a friction now that is we have to make things secure and private, yes, but at the same time, when we make things secure and private, we make them more difficult to use, right? We introduce a certain friction out there and that friction at the same time where you wanna make things secure and private makes them harder to use. And those people who you want to use them can't get in because it's too hard to use. So we've gotta have something that's, that's gonna resolve this, this dilemma. I kind of feel like 
you know, maybe we'll get there in a few years. I don't have the answer, but I feel like there's important reasons to make access harder. But at the same time, when we make access harder, we exclude more and more people. So, you know, it's kind of a downer message at the end of the day, but it is, it's a problem that we have to solve, right? And so when we look at this in terms of accessibility, this is the same thing that the, the people who are big advocates of accessibility have been arguing all along, that things are for more abled people, and that makes it harder to, to, to get people who don't have the same capabilities in. So we've got to find a way to get through this. We've got to find a way to reduce the digital divide. Instead, I, I feel like at least momentarily, we're increasing that divide. Mm. Thank you so much for bringing that up because that is something that we are creating as a disability by not including the older adult population in our designs. Maybe they are not the target audience, but in cases where they are, even then if they're not able to use, then it is a man-made disability sort of. And I mean, there are certain markets where it's more important than others, right? In you know, Europe and the US, the populations are getting older. In Japan, the populations are getting older, even in China. In, in Africa and India, the populations are, are younger still. But, you know, in terms of the population and what, what kills me from a, from a marketing standpoint is if I'm a marketer and my market is, is Western Europe, why am I not trying to get older adults who have the money to spend, why am I not bringing them more into the the research fold so that um, you know to make whatever product more available to uh, to older adults? Absolutely, that's a really interesting point you brought up. Thank you so much, Bob, for all the insights you gave, and this has been a really interesting conversation from telegraph to AI to accessibility for older adults. So this has been a roller coaster episode. Thank you so much for all your insights. And I hope even you learned something new because I definitely did. I did. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye.